Welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and this is episode 15 of season 2, Conversation with Chad Andrews. And we're calling this one The Dirtbag Dream is Not Enough. Chad runs a financial, I guess, literacy, knowledge-based podcast called Clipping Chains. They also have a great Instagram account. This is probably the most comprehensive conversation I've had about the origin story of the zine and kind of the day-to-day grind of, of what makes it work. And Chad really had some great questions, I thought, for me. He aired this on his podcast, and then we're going to also um, share it here. So tables have turned on me on the mic, and um, Chad's asking the questions, and I thought we had just a really bit great conversation. So want to share that with you guys here. Of course, the best way to support this podcast is to pick something up. We'll leave a little discount link in our show notes where you can get some merch, some books, some subscriptions, and you could even get our uh, climbing children's book, Squeak. All right, let's get into episode 15. Hey everyone, Tommy Caldwell here. You know, everyone, at least in the climbing world these days, is trying to figure out ways to live more intentionally, to live a less impactful life. And one of the best things we as climbers can do to make that happen is to support and buy things from the companies that are doing the same thing, the companies that are figuring out ways to lower their carbon footprint, lower their chemical usage, make their products out of recycled materials, make products that just don't wear out. And you know, the only company that's doing that well in the ropes and hardware space is Edelrid. They've been innovating the best products for over 100 years. They invented the sit harness. These days they make unquestionably the most high quality ropes, the lightest weight carabiners, and really they're just awesome all around. So check them out at www.climbgreen.com. Hey, this is Chad Rich. I'm the editor and producer of this podcast. We can't bring you this audio art without your support and support from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Scarpa. Scarpa's approach to climbing shoe design mirrors their approach to the pursuit of climbing itself. They strive to evolve and incorporate new ideas and techniques every step of the way. They refine their strengths, train their weaknesses, and build on each success. Scarpa has been bolstering its climbing shoe foundations by continuing to create versatile, high-quality designs that satisfy the needs of climbers across a range of disciplines and skill levels. For more information, visit scarpa.com. Now let's get into the episode. Okay. Well, cool. Let's, uh, let's jump into it. Luke, welcome. Right on. Thank you so much. Yeah, man. What's going on? You're over in Durango. Is that you just got back from a flight or something? What what were you? Yeah, I just got back from an East coast trip, uh, to see the family out in the lovely state of New Jersey. (laughs) You're not from (laughs) New Jersey. Actually, New Jersey has a bad reputation, but it, uh, it, it's nice. Like we, we stayed in the beach there. We went to like this farm to table place one night and I was pleasantly surprised with New Jersey. You're from Illinois, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, right? I'm from Illinois and my brother, um, followed his now wife out to New York city, um, to she's in the wedding industry, wedding dress designer. And so he followed her out there. And then once they had kids, they moved out to the suburbs of Jersey. Yeah. And so I guess maybe as a decent segue into your kind of 
upbringings and getting into climbing, being from Illinois and then making your way out West, I guess for folks who aren't aware of who you are and what you do in the climbing world, which we'll certainly get into, maybe give us a, a little bit of a backstory on, I mean, this kind of wild ride you had coming from the Midwest to eventually landing in Gunnison, Colorado. Now you're in Durango, but it, it's, it's been quite a ride to get here. Maybe we can chop this up into pieces, but I, I guess maybe give us a short synopsis of this journey you've been on. Yeah. So I think most people associate my name with the climbing zine Mm -hmm. uh, for better or worse, but that is what I call my baby. And I've been doing that for just over 10 years now. And so I think most people associate me with the zine, um, but I'm also an author and I have my own podcast, the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I got into climbing in the late nineties in Illinois and um, was like, uh, I guess the first generation of uh, gym rats and I was, I was 20 when I really got into climbing. So I was a little bit older. I didn't, yeah. And how old are you now? You're like a few years older than me. I'm 37 almost now. So what yeah, you, I'm yeah. 42. Okay. Yeah. That's what I figured. A few years. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I got in as a gym rat and, um, honestly like six months into climbing, maybe even a little bit less, I moved to Colorado to go to college. So that moving to Gunnison, Colorado is what really, really got me into climbing. But I, sure. I kind of fell in love really with gym climbing right off the bat. I kind of had a sports background. I was never great at any sports, but I, you know, love basketball like a lot of kids do and, and baseball and mm. soccer. And, um, yeah, so it kind of came from a sports background. So I think the gym appealed to that Midwesterner in me. Um, but yeah, I, I have roots in Illinois, but I really didn't climb there that long at all and, and moved to Gunnison, um, even within that same year in 1999 when I started really climbing. So now, I mean, you've been quite frank. I mean, I'm referring to, I mean, I've been listening to your podcast now quite a bit and you were going through what was, see, what book was that that you kind of walked through? It was the American Climber, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And you've been quite frank about mental health issues that you feel like you work through, through climbing and through travel. And we have this very similar background that I kind of find fascinating because I went to school in Boone, North Carolina, which was this like, at least in the time, like around, you know, early 2000s was this kind of like dready hippie kind of like jam band scene. Uh-huh. And I, I don't hear, I, I know these people are here in the climbing community, of course, but I've never heard those many, that many stories about that kind of life until I started listening to you reading your book. And I'm like, oh my God. I mean, like, this is the guy, like I knew so many of like these people when I was growing up and I didn't climb yet. What was going on in your life at that point? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess two kind of themes there, you know, the, uh, my gateway to, well, I view climbing as like a counterculture, you know, I know climbing is more mainstream now, but I do think that, um, on the road climbing is, is still a counterculture, it you is. know, yeah. uh, it's quite different now than it was in the late nineties, um, early two thousands, but the grateful dead was kind of like my gateway drug to American climbing or Amer- American, uh, counterculture. Yeah. So I got into the dead in 1995, like literally a week before Jerry Garcia died. I was like, went up to Michigan to visit a buddy in Ann Arbor and there was a big hippie scene up there. And I I got a tape somehow that had like uncle John, uncle John's band and friend of the devil. And I was like, just in love with this music and just listened to it the whole ride home in my mom's minivan, you know? And, uh, and then I remember a week later I saw on MTV, it was like, Jerry Garcia died of the Grateful Dead. And I was like, who's Jerry Garcia? <laughs> you know, I, I knew the Grateful Dead, but I, uh-huh. I, I knew so little, I didn't even know who Jerry Garcia was. Um, and then I like really fell in love with, I don't know, fell in love is the right word, but fell in love with the music and then fell into that lifestyle. 
Um, but then around that same time period, um, in my first couple colleges I went to, I was struggling with mental health before I even like knew the phrase mental health or knew anything about it Mm -hmm. and definitely have a family history of that. And, um, just really all the substances I was on, I think contributed to it a lot. You know, I'm a person that needs, you know, daily exercise and I don't need a lot, but I have to exercise every day. That's kind of like my, yeah, the thing I have to do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, 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 totally. Just the endorphins. And so for me, it was like, I was, you know, just, just on substances all the, all the time, you know, and I was on like Dexedrine for ADHD medication and, and smoking a pack of cigarettes a day and drinking caffeine and, you know, alcohol that comes along with the college experience and then smoking pot all day, every day. And just like, you know, I, I still, you know, dabble in, you know, like plant medicine drugs as, you know, as, sure. as in a recreational way. And believe in those things, but just being on substances all the time and not exercising for me is, is definitely going to be detrimental. So I reached a point of getting to be suicidal and, um, yeah, that was, that was kind of how I ended up in Colorado was I kind of just took off and, and was really like, I, I don't know. It was like kind of, I was like delusional, like my brain just wasn't functioning properly. And I thought these things were happening to me that weren't really happening. And I think there's, I'm sure there's some sort of mental disorder that, is diagnosed, but like I, you know, back in that day, I don't think I ever heard the word. I don't think I heard the word mental health till the last maybe 10, 15 years. So right. I did figure it out through, you know, like self-medicating in nature and just being out in nature all the time and climbing and, and really kind of finding my place and, and climbing kind of gave me that will to live. I always joke that like climbing tried to kill me <laughs> when I decided I wanted to live, you know, because those first <laughs> couple of years of climbing, especially if you're track climbing, especially if you're a male, I think those are dangerous. You're just so yeah. you're, 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 you're just like a toddler running around, you know, <laughs> like you don't know shit. Did you yeah. get this way? Do you think because you didn't have like a physical outlet? Did, I mean, were you, were you kind of like on this like substance abuse train because you didn't realize yet that, because I look back in my years and I have a, a, a similar story, honestly. And I didn't think I knew at that time that I needed to be so physically active and I was trying to like fix it in other ways. Yeah, no, I, I definitely didn't know that. And, and for me recently, I, I've really gotten to my groove probably in the last like 13 to 14 years. Cause mm-hmm. you know, climbing as an escape and as a, a source for all your happiness is dangerous too, you know, because yeah. you need yeah. more than just climbing. You need relationships, you need your purpose within work. Um, so yeah, the first few years of climbing, I was just like a climbing addict, you know, and, and just throwing myself out there and, and kind of had mentors, but also, you know, made some pretty big mistakes that I probably shouldn't be alive today, but I am. And I think a lot of trad climbers, especially, or big wall climbers have those similar stories of, you know, I think anyone who's climbed big walls for 20 years probably has a near death story. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that's fair. Um, yeah. So you say 13 or 14 years ago, that's an oddly specific time frame. Is there, <laughs> yeah. is there, is there some sort of memory you have on like, and, and by the way, I encourage everyone to go check out either the book or Luke's uh, reading of the book on his podcast. Um, we go in a lot of detail about these early years, which I found fascinating. It's this kind of Jack Kerouac ass, like on the road kind of, you know, slice with, uh, I don't know, fear and loathing kind of vibe that I find fascinating personally. But what, I mean, what changed 13 or 14 years ago? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's interesting you say Jack Kerouac because he's the cautionary tale because he killed himself with alcohol, <laughs> right, right. you know, and I wonder his best writing is, is Dharma bombs, I think. And he's, you know, off the bottle and, and out in the mountains and, 
you know, could you imagine if Jack Kerouac climbed like that would <laughs> probably be the <laughs> the best book out of the 1960s Seriously. ever, you know, and, and maybe he would have, uh, I always, I've, I've written that before. Like if Kerouac or Garcia had uh, different outlets besides mm. drugs or mm-hmm. alcohol that they could have, but they were both killed by fame too. So I quite, sure. I don't have the fame problem yet. <laughs> <laughs> yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the reason I say 13, 14 years ago is because, um, I was, I had tendonitis one winter and you know, I think tendonitis is pretty treatable, but I was in Salt Lake city and for a winter and I'm not a skier. It's like a defining trait of me is I'm not a skier. And Despite I was living bumming in it. all these cold places that you've lived in. Right. Yeah. 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 I tried, yeah. I tried, trust me. <laughs> I tried. Um, and all my friends are skiers and I, I look at, you know, skiing as, as part of the family, you know, you know, climbing, skiing, boating, biking, whatever. I, I think it's all, uh, it's all in the same vein. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was living in this basement. I just ran out of money. I didn't even try to be in Salt Lake city, but I just like partied for to- two weeks and like went to whole foods every day. <laughs> and then <laughs> that $1,500 I had saved for the winter was gone. And I, so I was washing dishes at this vegan restaurant and, um, I just, yeah, was just kind of just bumming it and living in this super cold basement that didn't have any heat and my car was broken down and I was just like, this, this isn't working, you know? And so I ended up pretty quickly scoring a, a good job at my alma mater in Gunnison. And I kind of got into running in that time period too, because like I said, I don't think client just climbing is enough and especially having tendonitis um, and not knowing how to treat it. I was getting not much exercise. I kind of started getting into cardio more and I was like, oh, this is, um, you know, ironically like cardio is just as important, you know, climbing is way more engaging and fun, but, um, Mm -hmm. I just kind of realized, yeah, that like, you know, like some people need a cup of coffee in the morning. It's like, I I definitely need my like cardio every day. And, um, so I just, yeah, that's, that's kind of, and that's also the same time period I published my first zine. And so it was kind of that, realizing the dirtbag dream is not enough and then diving, you know, I, I kind of dove right into trying to be as professional as possible and, and kind of putting my heart and soul into writing. And then also coincidentally, like starting zines around the same time. And, and these are old, like skate punk rock style, staple right, together. Right. Indie kind of magazine, like in a coffee shop on the table kind of vibe. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that was all around 2007 when it, everything just kind of coalesced and it was like, you know, closing in on 30, realizing, you know, that the dirtbag dream is, is not enough to be happy. And then also like just figuring out, you know, a good routine for, for mental health and, mm. um, yeah. And just, just like finding that kind of recipe for like a foundation for, for like a, an adult life. <laughs> Yeah. And, and so when you, when we kind of connected, I mean, it's been since last fall, it took us forever to get this going, but I was super surprised (laughs) because I knew who you were. I'd heard you on the Enorma cast. I knew about the climbing zine and you had this like tagline, like dirtbag state of mind. And I was like, no way this guy would ever be into the things I'm writing about. Like this is, I just (laughs) kind of figured that was the segment of the climbing world I would never reach. Like the true dirtbags are unreachable with topics of finance. And, but when you, when we talked, I was really surprised to hear you're like, Hey, you know, I've, I eventually had a change of heart. You know, I had, your dad's an accountant, right? Yeah. Correct. And, And you could just kind of had this change of heart all of a sudden, which is fairly typical. You said you were right around age 30. And I don't know what it is about our brains or our life experiences at age 30. I had the exact same thing kind of in my twenties, didn't care too, too much. 
but something about at age 30, there's some magical switch that goes off for a lot of people. And they're like, ah, you know, something's got to change. And so I guess why wasn't it enough for you just to, because you really were, you were like on the road, old school style, like living in your car. This was not like Sprinter life or anything, right? I mean, you were, you were bare bones washing dishes in restaurants, correct? Hand to mouth. Yeah. yeah hand to yeah. mouth. And, and pre-smartphone, pre-social media, pre-online dating. Um, I mean, how were you making ends meet in those days? Were you just literally just picking up gigs wherever you, if you stayed somewhere for a few months? What was that life 90, like? 98% of the money I made was from dishwashing. <laughs> And you have actually a pretty hilarious photo you put on social media occasionally of your uh, of the, apron. Yeah, yeah the Michelangelo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to put that in our show notes. You'll have to send yeah. me that photo. I'm like kind of good at being things you don't want to be good at, you know, and <laughs> and dishwashing is not something you want to become good at and you don't want to make that a career. Um, but yeah, I was like, and honestly, dishwashing was the first, the first zine I ever got into was this zine called Dishwasher really? by Pete Jordan. Oh, so you wrote for someone else's? No, no. He oh, had so you, a, okay. He had a submission. zine called Dishwasher, and he oh, was trying to see. wash dishes in all 50 states. Oh, right. You talked about this with Caloose on the Normalcast. Right. Yeah, yeah this okay, guy okay. got famous because he was like dishwashing everywhere and writing about it, basically. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. he was on Letterman. Oh, wow. Okay. And like Letterman's Prime. And like, yeah, he was famous for this. And I, I don't have a skate and punk rock aesthetic. You know, uh -huh. I, I respect those things, but- like, if you want to torture me, you know, put on some punk rock, you know, like, <laughs> and I just skate culture. I just, it's super cool. And I, I emulated it. I emulated it a lot, but I'm just not into it. It's just not my thing. Um, so I came across uh, a zine library in Salt Lake City. And um, the only zine I really liked was Dishwasher by Pete Jordan. But I love the format. You know, it's like you can borrow things from places. And I think you know, punk and skate culture is, is the ultimate like DIY. And, mm -hmm. and I guess climbing has had a similar trajectory to skating too, where it's, you know, gone from this super rootsy thing to uh, a mainstream activity. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So. And, um, and so I guess at this point, I mean, you've been on the road for how, like to give me a time frame here, like you left Illinois and kind of started bouncing around. What year is this? Like, 1999, I think you said ish. Yeah. So, but I did go to college. So I graduated from okay. college in That's 2004, right. but I was like taking a semester off quite often and just living in a tent for four months at a time. Oh, wow. Okay. And really in that, I think helped me, it was like self, self therapy with nature and just like making peace with nature and, and myself and everything. And, and I was like, frankly, in love with that lifestyle, um, for a certain time period, you know, I thought it was beautiful and, also coming from the Midwest where there, you just can't even do that in the Midwest. You'd like get arrested mm. or something. <laughs> yeah. There's no, there's no like public <laughs> lands. Yeah. Like, yeah. And then out in the West, there's sprawling public lands. Right. And, and back in that era, it was a lot easier to find campsites and, and stuff like that too. So, so I did the college thing and then was always, you know, going on trips during college. And then, you know, it was probably only three or four years where I was really living on the road and, um, you know, kind of having the, yeah, Jack Kerouac type adventures okay. and, you know, the dirt, the word dirtbag, I'd never heard that word once during that time period is always climbing bomb. Yeah. It's still kind of a weirdly derogatory word in my mind. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> it, it, I love it because yeah. it's uh, provocative. Yeah, you know? that's true. Like, it's I think true. that's why the t-shirts like 
they really have taken off recently and like dirtbag state of mind people like even going to the post office, the post office ladies are like, what is that? You know? <laughs> and so it's, I love the word because it's provocative. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. But yeah, dirtbag state of mind, my designer actually came up with that Mallory Logan. Hmm. And I think dirtbag state of mind kind of frames everything well, because it's like, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're building off that foundation of loving being in the outdoors, but right. you don't actually have to be out in the outdoors all the time to, to get the benefits of it, you know? No, I, I think it's perfectly framed for what you're putting out there. And I guess we're, and you have this love for language and I can tell in the way you write and in the way you talk about just being out in nature. I mean, there's obviously that poetic sense about you. So did you always have that? Were you always like a journal writer and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like weaving us towards your career in writing. Where did that start for you? Yeah. Yeah. So my mother uh, was an English teacher. Okay. And so I think it's, um, and I found out a few years ago, my grandfather was discharged from World War II because he could use a typewriter. Really? <laughs> so he got sent back to the States and uh, could type. He could use a typewriter. So he was writing discharges. And that's how he, you know, who knows? I might not even be here today if he didn't know how to type, you know? So hmm. I think it's in my DNA um, writing. But I it really started with poetry when I moved out to... Gunnison and I had, you know, some professors that were influential and then I go having a climbing experience and then these poems would just like literally write themselves, you know, it was just like, I was just kind of the vessel. And and so that, that all went hand in hand. Um, and before that it was just like angsty, angry journaling that I don't even have that stuff anymore, but so yeah, it really went hand in hand with, with having a structure and having, um, you know, professors at, you know, that place I went to college at, it's a university now. It's, it's quite different. It's still a great place to go to school, but it was like this small college and you just had these amazing professors that would, they were there cause they wanted to be there. And, and they're like, yeah, write some poetry, you know, where I think a lot of, in a lot of colleges or universities, like pursuits like that maybe aren't as encouraged as encouraged as much as they are. And then once a couple of professors liked my poetry, they just encouraged me like big time. And were like, you should, you know, my writing mentor, George Sibley was like, you kind of write like Kerouac. And then I think the day he said that, I was like, he could have been lying, but I was like that, that, that sealed my fate. Hmm. Just the day he said, you write like Kerouac. It just, yeah. And what school is this for reference? This is in Illinois, it's, right? He, no. Th so I went to two colleges in Illinois. Okay. Kind of, I didn't quite flunk out, but I wasn't doing great. Okay. And I, I really didn't like, you know, frats and sororities either. I have a, you know, I'm, I'm definitely kind of an anti-establishment person. I just thought I didn't like frats and sororities. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up at Western State College in Gunnison. And it's a small liberal arts college. And now it's a university and they have master's programs and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um but yeah, at the time it was just a small uh, liberal arts college. And and so I guess when you, you know, I think it's 2007, you said ish, when you're in Salt Lake kind of hitting rock bottom. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Quote unquote. I mean, did you immediately say, well, I need to just turn to writing? Is that like, or like, yeah, I mean, cause it's, this is one thing I hear from, writing seems to be one of the most, it seems like one of those kind of glamorized lifestyle jobs that people really want, but maybe don't appreciate um, what it takes and perhaps how little it pays sometimes. You're actually the first writer of several I've attempted to get on here that have actually agreed to come and talk about it. Cause most of them are like, uh, I can't give you any financial advice. So I'm like, Oh, we can talk <laughs> about other stuff. And they're like, no, I'm not, I can't. So like, what is it? I, maybe I'm asking too many questions at once, but where did you start? I mean, cause now the climbing zine is I, I, from the outside looking in quite successful. 
but was it just full steam ahead on this idea or were you writing in other publications along the way? Yeah, the the writing part was um so I'm I'm definitely need a, an obsessive outlet, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I definitely have, you know, obsessive qualities. Uh, like I think a lot of <laughs> climbers do. Yeah. Um, and so when I was in Salt Lake City and I wasn't climbing, I just had this desire to write all the time. So I would just, yeah, go drink my tea or coffee and just write, 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 write. And at the time, you know, you're pitching to um, mostly like print publications. Um, so it was very difficult to get any sort of money, you know. And I've always been late on everything. Like I'm definitely late on all tech and, mm. and late, like even blogs, like someone told me in 2007, like you should start a blog. And I'm like, what's a blog? <laughs> you know, that would have been a good time um, to start one. Yeah. Yeah. And I did start one shortly after, but, um, I, I'm just like in the zine, the zine didn't have a website for the first two years, you know, let alone social media. So I'm just kind of always behind. So it was, it came from that pure place of just needing something to focus on and create and tell stories. And and that's what I think zines are super cool. Um, and I don't know if I ever would have started a zine if it wasn't that year of 2007, you know, cause it's counterintuitive to go towards print. Uh, and, and we can look at, you know, we can talk about the economics of print because I think it is viable. I think magazines are going to die, but I think books and zines and, you know, like we were talking about records and we were talking on the phone, Mm-hmm. There is very much a market for that. And, you know, people were kind of telling me I was, I should, I shouldn't start a print publication when I did, but I also didn't start it for money. Like I just, mm-hmm. I had a full-time job when I started the zine. So I just started it just to do it. Like, what was your full-time job at the time? I was um, the assistant director of marketing and public relations. Is this so, for a, a publication, like a written publication? That was at my alma mater. So okay. they were still okay. Western State College yeah, at that time. So I was writing. And that's really where I got my education on the technical aspects of writing because I'm a super kind of ADHD type and I only hear or absorb what I want to hear and absorb. And <laughs> I didn't get an English degree. So I didn't know where, a, I still don't really know where a comma goes, you know, or a <laughs> semicolon. I'm better or an M dash or whatever. And I hire editors and stuff. But I was, I got that education while I was working. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the, uh, the path towards, um, you know, learning, learning the craft. And then the zine, the zine started as this thing that it wasn't supposed to be a business. Hmm. This is just supposed to be a a one-time thing. Yeah. Oh, really? You were just going to do like one, like literally one publication to put it out there once. Yeah. So I did a zine called Moonlight Dream Chasers. (laughs) was this thing that this cook I worked with, he said he was on mushrooms and he came up with it and he's like, I got to use this somehow. He did the cover <laughs> art. And then the second zine I did was the Gunnison Valley as base camp. And then, and that was all stories about how people, you know, these mountain towns that people can't get away from. And, mm. and Gunnison Crested Butte is certainly like that where people just leave oh, and come back yeah, all the time. Absolutely. I've been gone for 10 years and some people will see me on the street and act like I never left, you know, huh. <laughs> like they'll just like, Hey, <laughs> you're like, I haven't, I haven't seen you in 10 years. <laughs> like just one of those communities, you know? Um, so I started the climbing zine because I had these climbing stories that I didn't have a home for because if the mountain gazette or rock and ice or climbing or the alpinist wouldn't publish your work, you really didn't have anywhere to go with it. Hmm. And so that's, that's how it started is that I had these, I wrote a story they wouldn't publish it. And I was like, huh, I should just put this out there on my own. So that's how the climbing zine actually started. And so you wanted something that was a physical, just 
hold in your hand kind of publication. And where did you think you were going to sell these things? Like, what were you going to do with it? I mostly just gave them away. Oh, really? Okay. So you're yeah, just like, yeah. like the dude in the back of his car, like with the mixtapes, like in the early nineties. Exactly. Like, yeah. 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 <laughs> I Chris Hampton stuff, and I, which yeah, exactly. that's how we got connected was Chris exactly. Hampton when you spoke with him. But yeah, that's, that's exactly what it is. Instead of a mixtape, it's a zine. And, um, I think I sold a couple for $2 at the local deli in Gunnison called the Firebrand. <laughs> Yeah, because Chris has this like old school hip hop ethic, which I love. Actually, I have hands in like all kinds of this stuff. Like I love the old school hip hop, but I also was like, I'm with you. I like the old jam bands. I had that phase as well. And I just love that old school, just kind of like, yeah, we talked about this, like holding a record in your hand, looking at liner notes. I just miss it. But you, we talked about this a little bit and maybe we're jumping the gun, but I've been encouraged to hear you say that you think young people are still into this stuff. It's not all digital. Yeah, this is definitely, you know, some advantages of, of not becoming crusty and, you know, Hampton and I talked about this and then Calus and I talked about this recently too, is these things that we do keep us from being too like crusty and bitter because there is this engagement with younger people and mm-hmm. they want it just as much as anyone. And even just like eavesdropping, I'll be in a coffee shop or something and young, like young 20 somethings or millennials or whatever like young millennials, um, they collect records and they collect zines and it's, they, they crave it, you know, and that's kind of been, I think at the heart of the success is that, you know, teenagers read the zine and then 70 year old, you know, armchair mountaineers read the zine and (laughs) people want that physical thing. I think especially climbers, it's like guidebooks didn't go away, you know? Mm, Yeah, that's true. I still haven't gotten onto the rack up thing where I hold it in my phone. sounds convenient enough. But and I'm still a sucker for my my uh, bookshelf full of guides. It's like my little yeah. trophy over there of all the places yeah, I've I gone. Know. I my I really like miss my book. I just moved and I really miss my bookshelf right now. I like can't wait to just see my books again. You know, oh, it's like one of the first things Had we put up when we moved into our house. Yeah, yeah, it's and like, it's it's you can judge someone by their bookshelf. You know, like you're <laughs> yeah <laughs> walking to somebody's house. You're like, all right, what do you got on the bookshelf? You know, exactly. Uh, so I guess how did, so you published this one thing, you just think it's going to be a one-off. I mean, and fast forward 10, 11 years later, you're doing this full time. I mean, this is your life. How did this happen? Yeah. Like, well, I mean. Yeah. So, um, I didn't know that you shouldn't quit a job that has benefits, um, during a recession. <laughs> so I was at the tail end of the recession. I shouldn't laugh. That's true. And I, uh, I was unhappy at the job. I had a new advisor and, uh, I, I didn't like her. And, um, I, uh, and I had a relationship that ended as well, just kind of the perfect storm and in, in Gunnison in the winter, you know, talking about depression and stuff like oh yeah, Gunnison has long winters. And if you don't ski, it's kind of hard to get psyched for winter after winter there. Um, so I was in this place of, all right, I'm going to quit my job and I'm just going to go for it. And, um, I'm gonna move to Durango. And so really moving to Durango started it because I moved to Durango and it was impossible to find any sort of job in that time period. And, um, and this is what year, like 2009 ish. This is like 2010, 2011. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of like the last right before the economy rebounded. Mm -hmm. And, um, I had a retirement account with like 20 grand in it or something. And I talked over with my dad and I, I liquidated. So I guess I need to back up a little bit because I did, another black and white, like the second zine was actually worse than the first one. <laughs> like it was more, more grainy and, and just, you know, photocopied together and just, just, just visually junky. worse. 
Yeah, yeah, visually worse. Yeah. And um, people were starting to tell me that I should go color. You know, I should have color photos in there. And because uh, people like the zine, they like the concept. And so I'm like, okay. And then if, if you know, printing costs are really going through the roof right now, but printing is expensive. That's why I think, you know, I, it's safe to say we're the only rock climbing independent print publication in the United States mm. right now. Mm. Um, that's, that has a, a major circulation. I, I don't count the Alpinist as rock climbing cause they're Alpinism, you know, <laughs> and then rock and ice. <laughs> There's a debate for you. Yeah. 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 Rock and ice <laughs> was sold to pocket outdoor media and yep, kind of dissolved right. and the right. same thing with climbing and pocket outdoor media is kind of a, a big media conglomerate. And I wouldn't say that they're independent. Um, so I did that. I, I dropped like 20 grand into the zine and eventually got a job in a restaurant. So the zine becomes my side hustle. And it progresses, you know, and I had a, a good friend of mine, Sean Matasavich, who had been working in marketing in New York City for a while and moved back to Colorado. He wanted to help me. He didn't want anything out of it. And so we go to outdoor retailer and we, we get meetings with these companies. At first, we didn't realize you're supposed to schedule meetings. We just showed up and <laughs> with our black and white stapled together zine and we like you know, got some quick draws to test and we're like, wow, we're really making it. <laughs> Petzl's giving us six quick draws. Like we made it. <laughs> and, uh, eventually actually, I think Patagonia was the first company we got to sponsor the zine. I, I did this thing where I wrote this article for Patagonia about how I wanted to be an underwear model for them. <laughs> and, uh, it like kind of went viral actually. And they published it on their blog. And so like, you, oh, know, you can, hilarious. yeah, it was, it was pretty funny. So, Patagonia becomes the first sponsor. And then, you know, you know, talking about leverage, you go into meetings and you're like, well, we have Patagonia as yeah, a sponsor. Seriously. And so that led Osprey, Black Diamond, you know, a lot of these other bigger companies to get on board and smaller companies too, because we definitely try to cater, you know, like Rock and Snow is a, you know, a small gear shop in New Paltz is a, yep, is yep. a sponsor. And so we have the, you know, everything from the Patagonia to like the Rock and Snow. Um Keep can you give me a, like a little peek behind the curtain if you can on like what sponsorship really means for something like you? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really essential because, um, you know, printing costs are really expensive. So mm -hmm. you basically just kind of trying to offset your printing costs because you have subscribers and we have a pretty decent subscription base, but you know, having these longtime sponsors place ads and in the publication and in the podcast, it's essential. You know, mm -hmm. it provides a decent amount of, of the income they regenerate. And what I found is it's not necessarily that we're giving them like the best advertising space in the world. I, I think it, it does bring a lot of value to them, but these people who work at these companies, you know, in, in the outdoor industry and I think any industry, there's a lot of bullshit, you know, like you mm -hmm. go to outdoor retailer and there's like a hundred people that want to show you these same backpacks and tell you how these <laughs> zippers are better. And <laughs> it's just like, it, it, I, I think that when someone comes in, like where we were coming in with this enthusiasm and then eventually the product caught up to what we were pitching. Cause we were mm. bullshitting, you know, like yeah. we were totally bullshitting and there's a lot of that in marketing too. But once we had this product that like where we're at now, where people see it, they thumb through it they're like, Oh, we love this. And so it's almost this like heart connection with people that work for these companies. Cause they, I think most of the people that work for these outdoor companies are, are like interested in real authentic, you know, storytelling and experiences and things like that. And then they kind of got to deal with a lot of other BS just cause they work in marketing or whatever. Sure, so sure. 
I, th- I think it's that in, in getting face-to-face time, you know, this last couple of years has kind of been difficult to get new business because you're not getting, I'm not getting like FaceTime with a lot of new companies. I didn't even go out to retailer this year because every company I work with bailed on it. Mm, yeah. Um, did it even not happen? Not every, but most. It did happen. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it happened, but you know, like so many companies didn't go, you know? Well, um, can I interrupt you and ask real yeah. quick? I mean, so you, you've talked to me at least and maybe other places on the importance of networking, which is often associated with like, I don't know, corporate world, you know, suit and tie, like out there rubbing elbows and stuff, but you're on the complete opposite end of, yeah. I mean the rainbow basically. What do you, what do you walk in? Like you've got like a couple of zines under your belt, like this total indie writer. Like what are you telling a company like Patagonia? I mean, where do you get the balls to do that to begin with? Honestly, I I couldn't imagine walking up to Patagonia and talking about, something like that, a company that large, like what were you and Sean doing? Like, what are you, what are you telling them? Yeah. So Sean was actually like quite good at that because he was working in marketing. And if you ever meet Uh, Sean, he's just a very, he's just one of those people that's really engaging to talk to. At this point, I don't even say anything. They, Hmm. they tell me why they love the zine. Hmm. Like I can go into any, you know, meeting with these companies and if they're a like-minded person, they'll tell me why they like it. And you but send it to we them were, ahead of time? Is that what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and and this is different. I mean, I guess you're kind of asking of like originally. Mm-hmm. Originally, yeah. you're you're making that pitch of this is real storytelling. This mm-hmm. isn't about, very simply, this is about stories, not numbers, you know? Right. And, and that pitch sounds, you know, a little different when you're in a meeting and you've got that kind of... Um, energy of where you're trying to sell something, you know, but at the end of the day, it's just like, this is real storytelling and this is like, this is homemade, you know? And, and that's what, um, people embrace. And, and there was a, you know, I didn't, cause I don't, I never realized any trends, but I think there is a, there was a trend back to something like that as the magazines kind of faded from their glory days, you know, because everything you find in a magazine now, you can just get that on your Instagram. Right. Right. And so, but with the zine, I mean, the zine, we, you know, Instagram is our most effective manner just because it is pictures and, and words and it's, it's worked really well. But I think that, you know, spending this time with the publication is, is, is like time well spent. You know, I'm, I'm like a collector of typewriters and a record collector and different things like that. So it's like, in that same vein of you're just this, this is a quality way for you to spend your time. And I don't think you get that. I think, you know, books provide that as well, you know? Um, but yeah, as far as just, you know, like having the nerve to approach these companies at the end of the day, they're just people like you are. Mm-hmm. And they're actually, I think they enjoy spending time with people that are passionate about what they're doing, you know? And it, Cause so many people are working for a company right? and they have to be there and they have to be put on this, like, you know, like BS of, you know, kind of talking about things in this way that seems exciting, but it's not. And then if you actually come to the table, especially I think in this industry with, with something that's real and telling a story. And then also, you know, I think like tying it back to mental health, I've had a lot of stories about mental health had a lot of stories from veterans, you know, we've had stories Mm -hmm. about eating disorders. We've had stories from, you know, people who are minorities in the climbing world who have a different take on the climbing journey, you know, because forever the climbing journey was, 
the white male, you know, conquers the mountain. Yep. You know, and then I think that's changed in this last decade and people are craving, you know, stories from different perspectives. So we've had those, those themes. And, and I think writing maybe even more than like a podcast format is you can really, really get down to your truth and you can really, really oh, tell absolutely. a good story, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I think that even, even over podcasts and film, I think the first person voice is, is, is really appealing to people. Um, right now, you know? So like I said, I didn't, I didn't like pick out all these trends and it just kind of coalesced and happened. But for whatever reason, there was like the audience was craving this thing and the zine kind of filled that void while magazines were kind of coming away for their prominence. Because if you started clamming in the nineties, the magazines were your main source of information. Yeah. For every, I mean, they, really were, they were about the, 10 years ago. Yeah. Totally dude. Yeah. 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 And so when that thing kind of hangs on and I'm not shitting on magazines, like I've, I've written for, for all the magazines and they gave me my start and everything. Mm. But if you just, you know, I think if we're having this conversation in 10 years, I don't think there will be like print climbing magazines. I don't yeah, think those will I'm, exist. I'm with you on that. The companies will still exist, but I don't think there will be maybe free ones, you know, but. Um, well, just to give some tangibles, I guess for, and, and the reason I keep bringing this up, I came from the corporate world. So when you sit in front of an executive or whatever, and you're trying to make your case on a project, they're all about bottom line. They want like bulleted yeah. list of ways this will change the business, usually with numbers. And so I, maybe this is the difference between the corporate world, you know, on a business side versus something like Patagonia, who ha has a very much different, you know, company corporate values. So they didn't care about any of that. They didn't want to know like how this will impact their business. They just wanted to hear you say that, you, just see that you were passionate about something and that you had a story to tell. Is that really as simple as it was? No, no. You okay. you, you got to have the numbers to go okay. with it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm just, yeah, I'm really trying to do. get tangible yeah. stuff for people to, okay. So you are kind of putting some metrics to this. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. We have metrics and, um, you know, the podcast is really great for that too, because you can get very, very specific mm -hmm. metrics. Um, but yeah, you know, that's where we are printing, you know, 10,000 zines, um, per issue. Um, you know, so they're, they're getting, they're getting 10, you know, like when you think about how many eyes they're getting, um, mm -hmm. on a specific thing, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely metric based. I mean, it's not like corporate America metric based and, sure. it's, and I'm not about, you know, I'm like, starting to give some presentations to celebrate 10 years of the zine. And it's mm. like, I never thought about this as a business. And now the next 10 years are structuring it as a business. You know, that's, that's where I'm headed, you know, but that'll be another, like in 10 years, let's have the conversation of, of where the zine is at, you know, but I never like viewed it as a business other than just like, I need to get out of the restaurant industry. So how much right. do I have to make a year? Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd love to be like a business success story uh, but I think right now it's just like a personal freedom success story. And I think that's why so many people like embrace it and love it and um, kind oh, of look up to me. Cause it is this, yeah, it's this personal freedom thing. And, and it's, you know, I, I don't, I make a very, very modest living at this point for sure. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. And, and so, no, I appreciate that. I mean, that's good context because I, I think a lot of people have no idea, like, you know, what a quote unquote successful author makes or anything. And I'm not going to sit here and be like, tell us your salary, but I'm just kind of curious as to, yeah. Like what would you do next to move it from, okay, this pays the bills. Cool. <laughs> Check. Never thought that would happen 
to now I'm going to treat it like a business and grow it. Like what mechanically are you thinking about doing maybe for the next 10 years? If, if you've got that lined out. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I got a, uh, something right in front of me actually. So oh, excellent. Um, yeah, it's, it's the, uh, you know, I want to bump up merchandise. Um, I want to kind of make a longer movie hmm. that might be able to reach a larger audience. I want to, you know, extend the podcast. Um, I want to write another book. I want to like, except cryptocurrency, you hmm. know, um, we were talking about NFTs on the phone. Like maybe I can sell zine covers as NFTs That's and generate yeah. something that. from that. Um, yeah. And, and just branching out with products and like, I've been like talking to backcountry.com about maybe teaming up with them to get them to start blasting out some of my products. So it's really, I honestly, I think it's, it's going to be like, I think it's going to be merchandising. So what are you selling? Yeah. Other than the zine itself. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's the dirtbag state of mind kind of line of products. So we have hats that Peter W. Mm-hmm. Gilroy makes. Yeah, they're great. I'll yeah. have to get you one of those. Yeah. 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 Um, and then it's the, you know, shirts, tank tops, hoodies. Those have like taken off in the last, even the last year. Uh, Cause you don't know if like the word, you know, cause the word dirtbag seems to have some staying power and like, oh, yeah. you know, people but you don't know if that, I, I never knew if that was going to stay or go away. Like talking about being behind trends. Like I don't, I don't really have my finger on the pulse that that word is going to be relevant. Um, I, I think the word is relevant. The lifestyle yeah. is maybe a little less relevant. I mean, people are doing it differently. They're still traveling. So different. Yeah. But the word is not going to die. I don't think. Yeah. 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 So I, I see a lot of growth in that and it's really just like, and I, I need to like, you know, I, I'm basically just, you know, buried in work right now and, um, I need to hire someone to, to do my, you know, fulfill my orders. And I just kind of need to go more vertical beyond just, you know, cause the goal is just to have the personal freedom. Like I, I've kind of just like, you know, the actor, Bill Murray, I don't know if you're, oh, yeah. oh, <laughs> like yeah. the way he lives his <laughs> life is like, you have to call Bill Murray or fax him or something if you want to get his attention and yeah, he doesn't have an agent. <laughs> really? <laughs> Apparently. Yeah. It, it just Bill Murray seems like the guy Bill to Murray. like live your life like you know. Exactly. Um, but for me at this point, it's like it'd be dumb to just continue. And and you know, mountain towns are getting more expensive too. So I think you got to think and, and just your future of like you know having health insurance and and just you know building equity and and ha- starting to save for retirement because I'm like you know still now I'm just like just starting to consider doing that stuff. So. Um, yeah, it's, it's really just about building the business, but then like, you know, I, I'm spending too much time fulfilling orders at this point. Like this, it's just, I can hire, I, sh- I need to hire someone to do that. So this is all like revelations that I've realized in the last like couple months. It's like, I need to just start thinking bigger, you know, cause I, I was just all about that personal freedom and I still am, but it's like at a certain point you're, you know, you're the losing freedom again. What's that? You start to lose freedom again. Eventually if you're just overworked. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and I'm not like, I'm not a workaholic, right. you know, I definitely don't have that personality. I'll, I'm a hard worker, but I'm not a workaholic. Yeah. I'm with you. Uh, on that. I don't know if very many climbers. Are no, yeah. I don't think we have it in our blood to just work. Like, I mean, maybe if you have something climbing related, that's about the only way I ever see it. But do you have, do you have people working for you now? Cause I know in your old interview with Calouse, you were still kind of like a, a mission of one at that point. Mm-hmm. Where are you now? Yeah. I'm, I'm the only one on, on the payroll. And then I have, um, ironically, I have the same editor I had when I was in college, uh, Lindsay Nelson. Mm. I've worked with her for like 20 years, but I hire, um, so I hire her as just a, you know, a freelance contractor and just, she edits all my books and the zine and, 
you know, kind of just charges me an hourly rate. And then my gotcha. designer is the same way, Mallory Logan. And she has her own, both, both of those women have their own business and both those women are actually still based in Gunnison, which is kind of cool. Um, and, uh, yeah, so mostly just, um, hire, you know, everyone on a freelance basis, you know, all the writers are freelance, but yeah. And probably next year I'm going to hire, um, someone to, to fulfill orders, um, and, and start there. You know, I, I, I don't have like, I don't have dreams of, you know, money isn't the ultimate goal, but mm-hmm. I, I just need to restructure it to where I'm like spending my time in a, in a good way and, and like carving out time for writing because, you know, most of my warnings are spent with spreadsheets and emails and fulfilling orders and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm kind of coming up on whatever, like the 10,000 hours of writing. And, and I really want to, you know, the beauty of writing is that you can just keep getting better even up to your, <laughs> till you start to lose your mind, you Certainly. know, you can keep getting better at writing where so many other things and sports, you know, there's an inevitable decline, but with writing, as long as your mind stays sharp, you know, you can just keep cranking out books and stuff. So that that's, and I, I want to do like movies and just kind of like trying to get into that mentality of like picking projects that I don't know I can do, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I kind of want to head in that direction and like, instead of just trying to keep up with everything and, and doing things I know how to do, like kind of take some risks and try to, you know, really be like, really be an artist. Cause that's who I am. You know, I like, I love business, but, um, all that stuff is just to, you know, focus on the art and then put the art out there. No, I, yeah, I love that. I mean, I think that's true for a lot of folks. It's kind of business cause you have to, I had a friend in college who was a masterful painter, but could not for the life of her get past the point of marketing her own work. And yeah. She just sat in her, you know, room going to a dead end restaurant job and was just quite depressed about it. And I'm like, man, you paint so well. You just got to get that marketing piece, which is hard for me too. Now I don't like depend on an income for what I'm doing now, but I really struggle with the marketing side of things. So maybe we could talk about the realities of being a writer and not just writing, because a lot of people can write well, but you've kind of gotten it to a point where you can pay the bills with it, which is frankly a little rare, I think. Um, I, I don't know. I don't have the statistics on that, but I think it's, like I said, writing is one of those careers. A lot of people want to do it, but the realities of putting food on the table can be quite hard. So did you have this natural ability to go out, like you said, to Patagonia or other companies and pitch your own work or kind of how do you approach that side of it? Yeah. Yeah. So I really struggle with, with that side. I, I don't struggle with it now because I, I think I have a better understanding of it, but you know, I was always that kid. I was always that person who had no money in their bank account and they would withdraw their account by 50 bucks when they're on a road trip and come back and <laughs> with a bunch of fees. Yeah. Yeah. And you get like your bank account has negative $70 <laughs> yeah. in it. So that's me. I'm that yeah. dude. Um, but I I've actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've actually got more interested now in just, I remember one time this was probably six or seven years ago, probably about seven years ago. I, my, it was this crazy car accident thing that happened in Salt Lake city. And we were like flying out to Squamish that night and we, we made it happen. You know, like we get on the, we got on the flight and then I had this, like, it wasn't even that big of a bill. It was like an $800 car bill. And that was all the money I had in my bank account. And I didn't even have a credit card. So I just didn't have any financial knowledge of like building credit or anything like that. And I remember at the end of the trip, my buddy, Sean, uh, had to loan me 40 bucks for gas. Hmm. And, you know, if I had a credit card, I just could have put it on the credit card. Right. And I think that was a, 
a point where I was like, man, I, I got to start to understand, you know, I, I got to have some financial literacy and I just, yeah, I got a credit card and started building credit and then like working on my credit score and then ultimately, you know, buying a home and, um, all that stuff kind of came, but I think what really rooted it was like having my own business and having that responsibility of, all right, I'm out of the restaurant game. I need to really focus on the fundamentals. And luckily, like I said, I have my dad as an accountant and then Sean is kind of like my advisor and my financial advisor, but it's actually, it, it gives you, um, even to have moderate, just like financial knowledge, it, it kind of brings a more peaceful feeling versus like this frantic, like, am I going to be able to pay the rent mm. every month kind of feeling, you know? Yeah. And so, um, you know what the business I do too, I think really came about, um, because you're right. A lot of people is a starving artist term for a reason, but I think you even look at like an Instagram influencer or something, I know they get a bad rap, but they're just like an artist with a bit of a hustle, you know? Yeah. And, um, got to give them that, that, that opportunity, you couldn't, there was no Instagram influencer 15 years ago, yeah. you know, <laughs> like you, you would have had to been like modeling for some catalog or something, you know? So, mm-hmm. and that way I think it's cool. Like, um, maybe not like the reality TV show type ones, but like these outdoorsy people, like they're getting a little hustle and they're getting three grand checks from, you know, some car company or something. And I, I respect that hustle actually. And I, I think that's cool. And, you know, a decent amount of the purchases for the zine actually come through Instagram. Um, and I, there's a lot of outlets, like just, just the internet in general, like having a website, you know, that, you know, I get orders from all over the world at this point and just, that wasn't really possible 10, 15 years ago. And, and that kind of, you know, the mailbox money and different things like that kind of got me excited of, you know, having stability within a business. And like I said, this, this first 10 years was just about the art, but then the next 10 years I was like, I'm, I'm actually like kind of, I kind of get excited about business and, you know, like, you know, just mentioning like the cryptocurrency and Mm. NFTs or whatever, and just like maybe trying to, you know, get on that bandwagon and seeing where that goes and that could fail (laughs) for sure. But like, I mean, how many, how many zines take cryptocurrency, you know, I think that would be kind of a cool thing to get into. I'm, I can be a little guilty of this. Like when I started this platform, promoting myself on social media felt like uh, the last thing I wanted to do. Still to this day, I really struggle with it. But mm-hmm. you're out there, you're on social media, you're pushing it pretty hard. I mean, you're making what, multiple posts a day. You're talking about NFTs, cryptocurrency. You're, you're really staying up with the times and frankly evolving with the times in a way that maybe is kind of rare for the kind of work you're doing. I don't know. I mean, I don't know enough about certainly the zine world or even some of the writing world, I just think a lot of people want to just kind of hide in their office and do their art and hope that good things happen. But what you're saying is it takes quite a bit of hustle beyond just the art. Yeah. Yeah. It's that like, yeah, I've really found the the love of the hustle. I think that's the perfect word is like, mm-hmm. and I think that's where like hip hop and even like, you know, people that would go on Grateful Dead tour would be selling, you know, a lot of times selling drugs, but a lot of times selling t-shirts or bumper oh, yeah. stickers and that hustle is, is fun. You know, it's like, it's fun to, you know, check your online sales of your website. I I'm actually like trying to encourage other people because I think climbers especially want that personal freedom. And it's kind of the other end of the spectrum from probably a lot of the people that you talk to that are retiring early or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's, it's about that personal freedom and for me, it also brings along purpose too, because I think purpose is like such a huge, huge part of life that you realize like what you're saying in your thirties or whatever. It's like, 
you know, something that you, even if other things aren't going great in your life that you wake up and you have that purpose of work, you know, like yes. Steve Jobs has yes. this quote about yes. like, you know, I think I got it written on my desk here. You know, it's just basically like, if you just stay true to your work and you love what you're doing and obviously Steve Jobs is a legendary asshole, but <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, it's like it just as much as part of your relationships and your family and whatever you do for fun, like your work is, is a huge part of it. And there's going to, you know, you, you could look at like a, like a Nipsey Hussle is another, he's a hip hop mm. entrepreneur that was fortunately the, the late murdered. Nipsey Hussle. Yeah. yeah. Late Nipsey Hussle. But he's, I mean, Nipsey Hussle is just Steve Jobs from, you know, South Central LA, mm. you know, like, um, but I think those people all probably love their hustle and, and, and love that. And I, I like want to encourage other people to go down that route as well. Like there might not be another climbing zine type thing, but if you want to, you know, write books or if you want to be a, into film or, uh, any of these things, like I, I try to encourage people to, you know, if, if, if that's what you want out of life, like there's now people you can kind of look to for a little bit of a, a blueprint, you know, um, like a Chris Hampton or, mm -hmm. you know, somebody like that. That's, sure. Um, I mean, yeah, that guy hustles. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, totally. How do you get past that point of kind of wanting to promote your own stuff for obvious reasons? Cause you have to, but you also kind of feel like, ah, am I spamming people? Am I blowing up people's Instagram feeds with just like a product? But if it works, I mean, like, obviously it works. I don't know. I'm just kind of rambling here because this is like stream of consciousness, but I'm always like, well, I, you know, I'd rather just like put a pretty picture up and just have no, have no comp caption, but instead I got to weave it back to, uh, the website work, get people to come to the website or for you to sell a zine. How do you kind of balance that? And have you ever had any issue with that? Or it's just like, Hey, this is what you got to do. Just do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, remove myself from a lot of social media. Cause I, I just think it wasn't, it's not good for like mental health or it's a time waster. Like I don't yeah. even ever go on Facebook or Twitter. Um, I'm just like Instagram and LinkedIn. <laughs> Link, mm -hmm. I think LinkedIn's is kind of fun. I don't know. It's, it's, uh, there needs to be like a LinkedIn for like dirt bags. You know? Yeah. I didn't <laughs> like, even know if like climbers were even on, on LinkedIn. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't think I get any business at LinkedIn, but <laughs> with Instagram, the reason I, I don't feel any shame and everyone has that like moment, you know, I might, mm -hmm. I have a personal page and like I put up like a photo of me and my brother with surfboards and it's like, right. is that really benefiting anyone's life? You know, <laughs> but true. with the zine, I, I have no, you know, no doubts about that because it gets them off social media too. Mm. Like mm. you order some books and then those books come in the mail and then you're going to spend so much more time with those books and zines and maybe even hopping on the podcast than you would on the Instagram. So kind of like for me, it, it like breaks this cycle of, of flipping through it, you know? Um, but you know, I can see where every sale comes from basically. So I know when, when a sale comes from Instagram and it's mm -hmm. like a sale comes from Instagram every day. Yeah. You know, so I think exactly. that, that gets it past that point of, um, you know, I, I think like if, if you're, if someone's reading it, it's their choice to read it. You know, it's their choice to follow you. Like especially Instagram, it's just like, and I wish, I wish they would never let Facebook buy Instagram because you know, oh. that just like gave Zuckerberg the, the full empire, you know, cause mm -hmm. I think, I don't think that has his DNA. Like I think face Facebook, I just, I can't stand Facebook, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think like getting past that, if it, I think if you're putting out like something positive or, or real storytelling, um, you know, or like what you're doing, you're, you're, you're trying to, I thought that was like, what I think is so cool about what you're doing is like, 
you're just trying to have some purpose and you're legitimately trying to help people. Mm -hmm. Like that's a hundred percent what you're doing. So you look at your intention of, of why you're on it. You're not like, you know, posting photos of some girl in a bikini because that's going to like get them to some weird <laughs> site shots, or something. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like in, in no disrespect for people that do that, but it's like, you're, <laughs> you're legitimately about, trying yeah. to help people. And I'm, I'm legitimately trying to get stories out there into people's lives that benefit people and enrich people's lives. So I think that's how I get around, you know, you know, and eventually I'll, I'll I would like to never, beyond that and just have someone else do it, you know? But. Oh God. Yeah. I say that every week. Like yeah, I should yeah. hire, even though I make no money, I almost just want to spend, drive this thing further in the hole just to hire someone to do this for me. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm with you, man. Like I, I think that's a beautiful way you summed it up is to get people off it and onto another sort. I mean, granted we're still on our phones, whatever, but man, that's way better time spent than uh doom scrolling or whatever, butt shot scrolling. I, and that's kind of how I've justified it too, because I, I backed away from social media, I don't know, about five or six years prior to restarting it for this on a personal level for the yeah. exact same reasons. Yeah. Um, and I really, really, really dreaded getting back in. But that's that's exactly how I've justified it myself. It's like, I'm going to try and put something out there that I hope will make someone's life better and get them to come away from social media to another source where maybe they'll learn something and it could maybe, maybe, maybe make a difference in their life. And so I appreciate that. And I think, and I've come to your website from Instagram and scrolled through some things and it definitely changed my day for the better instead of spending another five minutes, you know, I don't know, watching some other thing that could have been a complete waste of time. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm glad to hear that. that that's that's no, absolutely. That's great. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, you know, and so you've talked about, you don't have like investments in Roth IRA, but you're kind of heading that way. And so what's kind of changed? I mean, you, you, you've talked quite openly about this idea of following your passions and doing that kind of work, which sometimes for folks doesn't work out. I mean, because passionate pursuits don't always put food on the table and you're in this position where you are, but you're also thinking about the future, which I appreciate. So maybe kind of talk me through how you're I mean, cause I imagine 15 years ago, that wasn't something you gave a whole lot of thought to. So how, what changed and kind of why? No. Yeah. And I think it's just, you know, you see the people around you and, and all my friends are on a similar trajectory. You know, they're, most of them have families, you know, I don't have any children. I don't know if I ever will, but you know, I have nieces and nephews and I have friends with children and so you just watch your friend's life's change. And then, you know, you see your friend buys a house, You're like, whoa, you bought a house? Like, <laughs> how do you buy a house? And then you start to look at, oh, wow, I throw, I, I pay $15,000 a year in rent. Mm. And that's just money. You know, at a certain point it's, it's good to rent, but I think at a certain point it's good to, you know, build your equity. So you're like, it's all like just watching friends do things for me. Society you know? pressure. And, it's very real. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a healthy thing, you know, and then, mm -hmm. you know, cause I have friends that my friends that make the most money aren't necessarily the ones that are the best with their money. And so like even some of my friends that make a really good living, I've had to like sit down and be like, you know, you, you should look at buying a house or you should look at, you know, saving your money or investing it or mm -hmm. whatever. So it's almost that support system within a group of friends. And, and then that, I think at our ages, that stuff enables you to get out, you know, because if you have to have three jobs and you're constantly just trying to stay afloat, and you're not thinking ahead, you're maybe not carving out that time for climbing. But if you're, if you're paying attention to what you're doing and you're, you're working a certain amount that gives you 
a certain amount of freedom, then you are still able to get out and climb. Cause so much of my life now is still built around climbing, but it's like, it's short bursts of climbing and then weekends of climbing. It's hmm. not out there all the time. I like to go on climbing vacations and stuff too, but yeah, I guess heading in that direction that your friends are and, and hopefully, you know, I feel like a lot of climbers head in that direction just naturally. And for a lot of people, I think it's having, you know, having kids. Um, yeah. but for me, it's yeah. just like seeing how they're living their lives and, and, you know, kind of making similar decisions and then realizing, you know, that, you know, in a lot of cases, um, buying a house is better than, than renting and, you know, saving and investing and, different things are going to benefit you in the long run. You see them benefit your friends and, you know, kind of like you, I've got, I got certain friends that have done really well financially and you just kind of look at, and they're often the most frugal people. I know you, it's kind of interesting because my mom was like sitting down. My mom's like the hardest, the harshest person with me. And she's like, well, what, how are you living like a poor person to, you know, save money? And it's like, well, I don't necessarily subscribe to that. Like, yeah. And I've seen you reflect that too. It's yeah. like, you, you can buy that $3 cup of coffee. Exactly. You know, like, you can do that, you know? Um, and I think climbers, the good thing about us is, you know, I, I know very few climbers that waste money, you it's know? True. It's true. Um, I know, I, I don't know anyone in my age that like goes out and spends $70 at the bar anymore or whatever, you know? Mm. So what's it been like? I mean, you mentioned buying a house a couple of times. What's it been like in the last five or so years in a town like Durango, just kind of getting into current events a little bit. We've seen the housing market just blow up yet. You've been a prospective home buyer kind of, I mean, like, what has that been like? I mean, are you feeling the pinch in a town like Durango now? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, for sure. And it, it definitely makes me worry. I think I'm going to be able to get in, you know, I, I did buy a house and then I had a, you know, relationship that ended. And, um, so I, I am now looking, I'm actually at, at, in like uh, 40 minutes. I got to go look at a house. Hmm. Um, but it is, it is very, and honestly, it's not so much the last five years. It's, um, it's COVID and mm, the yeah, yeah. influx of people that always wanted to live in Durango, um, or, you know, St. George or mm -hmm. Bozeman or all these towns that are desirable and then remote working. And then I think people may be being cooped up in the city that could afford to move out, decided to make that move. And, um, so our prices have gone up 20% across the board. Um, so like a year yeah, ago, everything crazy. sounded expensive. And then, and now a year later, it's like, wow, that actually seems affordable now just with that 20% price increase. And then the inventory is really low too. Um, fortunately Durango is not like a Carbondale or a, a Telluride or a Crested Butte because there's so much space here and there's all these condos. So even being someone with a pretty modest, income, like I'm probably going to end up buying a, a condo and, and I want to snatch that up now before things get really crazy and who knows what, what'll happen, you know, with, with the real estate market. But it's definitely like, it's kind of, it's, it's disheartening in a way, but it's also just, you know, it's capitalism and it's it, what's it's supply and demand the downfalls of capitalism for sure. It's like, you know, I, I personally, it's like, I have a small business and I can grow my business and but people like a teacher, you know, you're kind of on a fixed income or a firefighter, or a, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. whatever. Hoping for modest raises. Yeah. Yeah. Like people that are in those kind of income things. And, and, but if you look at these other mountain towns, I mean, they're, you know, the pinch that they see in the, like, you know, in Crested Butte, I think the, the mayor of Crested Butte lives in affordable housing. This you know? is what you told me. I can't believe yeah. it. I'm going to have to check into this. Yeah. Someone told me that. <laughs> He's like, yeah, the, the neighbor's my, or the mayor's my neighbor. And 
um, it's just how it is in those towns. So it's like Durango is on the cusp of that and it's expensive. Um, have you known people leaving who just can't do it anymore? Um, you know, honestly for me, it was like more jobs that people would leave, like highly educated people uh, that would leave. Um, I think that will start to happen, but it's like, where are you going to go? Right. (laughs) If you're a climber, um, where are you going to go? You know, like you, you live in this town for these amenities, you know, you don't live here because are you just going to go to Kansas? Right. You know, cause I, I think people leave this town, but I don't think like avid bikers or climbers or runners, like they're just making it work. They're getting another job or they're, you know, hustling more or whatever. But for me, it's the answer is, is, is hustling more and, and building my business. And mm. I have the luxury to do that where like, yeah, like a teacher or something might not have that luxury, you know? Mm. Yeah. That's kind of the reason I asked. Cause I know climbers, I mean, we've all, I mean, I'm, I'm an East coast transplant as well. You're Midwest. I mean, we all kind of had this and I've wanted to be out West since I was a little kid and, you know, made that happen. And I feel like doing that. And I, I left in 2007, left North Carolina. I feel like it would be a very different world to do that in 2021. And uh, yeah, I moved to Portland and like had like, I think $300 in rent. I mean, like granted I lived like in the dumps, but I don't think you can do that anymore. I mean, that rent and even inflation adjusted in Portland is probably long gone. And certainly in Durango, Denver, a lot of, you know, Boulder, Salt Lake, even, I mean, all these towns that are desirable climbing outdoor focused towns are getting harder and harder. And, you know, yeah, that's why I kind of want to ask this about people who live in these towns and have seen these changes and just kind of how you're navigating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's just like at this point with a property, it's like just getting into something, you know, Mm -hmm. even if it is not is ideal or, you know, like in my hometown, you know, what I'm going to spend here could buy a, you know, 2,500 foot square, you know, square foot house. That's huge. But, um, it's, it's just about, for me, it's just about getting in and, and like continuing to build that equity and just laying the foundation. But, um, yeah, for, for younger people, like I, I always am like, want to look out for the dirt bags and yeah, it's, it's just harder to dirt bag and than it, than it used to be. But, um, I, I just, I see certain towns as, um, a lot harder, like even like a URA, cause I think they don't limit their Airbnbs hmm. and things like that. Right. Right. And they're having a housing crisis and then they don't have workers for the restaurants, you know? Um, but how do you fix that? It's like, I'm not an economist. I don't know, you know, cause deed restricted affordable housing is also kind of cruxy too. Cause then hmm. you're not building your equity. Um, but I, I just look at, there's towns that seem really, really, really tricky that are, that are, things are going on and, and Durango is certainly expensive and tricky, but I still see my way in, uh, where like a Crested Butte or a Telluride, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't think I could see a way in. Um, cause they're not building new houses. I mean, what you got places. is locked up, right? I mean, they don't have a whole lot of room to expand whereas Durango has been <laughs> yeah, building, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. People, they're building and, and, and I, hopefully they're trying to address the affordable housing stuff too. Mm-hmm. Cause yeah, when you have the the median price of like a home at five hundred thousand dollars, you know that's that's tricky for a lot of people to, oh, yeah. to pull off, you know, without you know support in, in one way or another. But do you have any tactics just kind of on the ground of getting an offer accepted in this environment? Is there anything you're thinking about trying to do to kind of stand out? I, I tried putting an ad because I heard I heard about this podcast about a guy in Bozeman that went on a street corner. He had made eighteen offers. 
and like modest, you know, $400,000 homes, modest, you know, that to somebody who lives in an affordable place, $400,000 probably buys you a mansion. But in a lot of these mountain towns, you can't buy a house for $400,000. No, no, you can't. And he was on the corner and he was featured on NPR, like Planet Money or something. And so I tried putting an ad in the newspaper because that's been a, a tactic really? for me too. Yeah, yeah. Because I write for the newspaper and I, I get free ads. So I used to get house sitting gigs for these free ads and you know, people still read the newspaper. And honestly, like sometimes a newspaper ad will get you more tra- you know, traction than like a Facebook post that's or something. That's fascinating. I tried putting an ad in the paper. Didn't get one response. Um, just but, trying to get someone to sell you their house. Just like I want Yeah, a house. like I'm looking to buy a modest condo or a house. Do you want to sell it to a local? Because I think what's happening, I think it's cooling off maybe slightly, but there was, you know, cash offers for above asking price coming mm-hmm. in for places mm-hmm. that a year ago would have sold for $400,000. Now they're selling for $600,000. People coming from bigger cities, sold People their house. from other places, yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. So whether or not that'll continue... You know, but that was, that was so related to COVID. You know? Right. It's like, right. I guess my tactics would be at this point, if I find a place I really like just to get a, an offer in right away, you know? Yeah. I might, yeah. Like I said, I'm going to look at places here in a little bit and they're both like condos that are in my price range. And probably if I want them, I got to put an offer in, but hope, I, I hope it's going to slow down, but who knows if like, this is, you know, I was talking to my dad about this. It's like, is this the first wave of remote workers? Like, is COVID going to get really bad again this winter? And then there's going to be a second wave or do we see the main exodus and now it's going to kind of settle out, you know? Yeah. What, what do yeah. you think? Uh, I would, it's a good point. I would think that the main wave was the first one, but you'll still, I think you'll still see a trickle at least of people who are continuing to try and negotiate this one way or the other and get out. Um, yeah. I just can't imagine that, the level of remote, the level of remote work won't stay as high as it was obviously where it was like almost a hundred percent for a white collar job. But I got to imagine that we're also not going to go back to the pre COVID levels either. And that maybe some of these people have been still thinking about moving over time and haven't fired on it yet. But I think maybe the worst of it was this past summer, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, 2020 into 2021, that kind of selling season. Cause that was when we moved and I couldn't believe how much activity there was like in the fall and winter, which is usually like a dead zone mm. for real estate sales. But there was so much activity. Cause I think people were finally like, I don't know, either negotiating with their bosses to get out or who knows. I can't, we could talk all day about all the reasons, but I'm not that much of a real estate expert either. So I guess we could all wave our crystal balls and see what happens. But yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll listen to this in five years and <laughs> My God, see, see what happens. Shot. I guess that's the beauty of something that you talk about. You don't yeah. know what's going to happen. Exactly. You know, I mean, who would back in five years? Yeah. Yeah. If we would have done this in April, 2020, making predictions about what would happen in the next six months, we would have been wildly off. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, you look at climbing and I, I've thought about this a lot too. It's like what we were doing with climbing and COVID was maybe a bit of an overreaction. And now things have seemed to go back to normal while COVID cases are super high, you know, because people are like, don't even go climbing anywhere. Oh, don't right, touch the rock. Right. And, and I was of that um, mindset too. And then obviously this was a new thing for everyone. In we, society, we didn't know. So yeah. We, we didn't had no know, idea. but you just look at like, what was, what was the right way to react? And what was the wrong way to react? And then now a lot of people are just going about their lives. Like, like it's normal, but obviously it's not. It's and, not, but you get used yeah. to the, you kind of have this like emotional kind of uh, adjustment to this new normal of just people dying and things. And you're just like, oh, whatever, let's go climbing. Yeah. It's just like our, our lives, but and I don't think we shouldn't go climbing. You know, no, we know enough now that yeah. that sort of activity, I, I can't imagine. There's too many people still too afraid to go out to the crag at this point, but I, there might be a couple. 
Yeah, and one and he, we like going all the way back to mental health. I think the mental health aspect of you know the repercussions of of shutting our connectivity off from everyone. You know, the, that damage, especially I think for like maybe certain mm. ages or certain people like that damage is, is going to inflict just as much as, you know, the damages of people getting ill and getting sick. Mm. And, oh, absolutely. I you mean, know. you got to balance that. I felt that last year we were on the road with just my wife and I not yeah, knowing yeah. anyone anywhere and I was just bouldering alone. Yeah. I mean, after like a few weeks of that, you start, you're like, why do I just not feel great? Yeah. Like you haven't been out with friends in months, you know? Totally. Yeah. And then even when you were with people, you were a little more guarded or you didn't get close and continuing to wreak havoc in in our world. And, but climbing and getting outside does seem to be a, a a way to deal with it in a, in a healthy way. And, um, you know, climbers take risks too. you know, someone wrote a really great article. I'm kind of psyched to have the zine as a chronicle of the times, you know, Mm because it started off in one era and then, we're living in a completely different world than when I started it. But remember in like 2018, you know, um, or not 2018, but volume 18, there's Samantha Zen wrote this art. She's Craig doodles is her artist name, but mm-hmm. she, uh, she wrote a, a piece about just like fear, you know, and just like hearing the word fear and like these words we'd hear, you know, as the, you know, things started with the pandemic and like, well, climbing, we have these words in our vocabulary and like we, we wrestle with risk and I think that's where we're all at right now. It's like, well, I guess, you know, I was just on an airplane and I was just mm-hmm. in New York city. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm comfortable with that risk, I guess, you know, <laughs> but it's like, we all have to weigh that risk and what risk we want to take. And, you know, for me, it's like being vaccinated is a very important part of my risk taking, you know, and second um, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for the record. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why I love what you're doing because writing art, music, it, captures the times and what comes out of someone in terms of those sort of art forms is always a reflection of what's going on in society in that moment. Yeah. And so and this is, you're, you know, you're capturing think, it totally. And, and it, it's like the world needs that. Maybe that's why things haven't slowed down on my end is because people are like, we still need this and we need these like deep personal essays mm. of, you know, what people are going through in these certain time periods. And certainly that's not all everything is about. Cause that, it's kind of drives our minds crazy, but you know, it'll, it'll be hopefully in five years looking back when things have hopefully settled. I guess they're either going to settle down or going to get worse, but it'll, it, it'll be interesting to like look at a zine from five years ago and just see where we were at. And, you know, especially with also like the racial justice um, mm-hmm. you know, movement last mm-hmm. year and where we're at with that. And then as you know, climbing, getting more diverse and just, you know, this, the whole journey that we're on with climbing and in the world, it's, it's nice to have a timestamp to be able to look back and, and get like personal reflections from people and had no idea, like when I started it, that it would go in that direction. But now I, I'm, I really love that, that it's, you know, like my Instagram got hacked the other day <laughs> and I was like, no one can hack. And I got locked out of it. And I was like freaking out, you know, it was like a good lesson. And impermanence but it's like no one can hack the thousands of zines that are like out there in the world and on people's like you know toilet seats and (laughs) and people's vans and bookshelves and i love it yeah no one can hack that from me you know yeah we're living in history this is real time we're always living in history but this is one of those things that'll definitely make the books these days we're living in and yeah i appreciate you and everyone else who has these ways of capturing it so we can look back at it one day of course we're capturing everything now you know the world is awash with data and images and stories, but 
I still think what you're doing is quite different. Yeah. And, when a lot of these things we won't have at our, our, we won't have to, to reference in five years, mm-hmm. you know, that's like true. everything is going to be true. buried and whatever yep. tweet somebody made 10 years ago, unless they're like, someone's trying to cancel them. <laughs> yeah. Unless you're running for office, then they'll find it. <laughs> yeah. Or you're yeah. a comedian or something. <laughs> yeah, like, you can't true. tweet about that. <laughs> Kevin Hart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh God, we go in a whole different rabbit hole here. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, um, but be, yeah, yeah. No, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, just, just, yeah, just, just coming back to the yeah appreciation of of an art form that is um, tangible and that, like, you know, you you have there, and it's it's for me, it's like this, it's like a heart connection. You know, most of all, it's like that's why we love books or mm. any piece of music or film or whatever that we just cherish you know it's like this it's this heart connection and and for some reason having a physical copy of something um whether it's a book or a zine or a record it's like that for some reason we want that as human beings Hmm. a lot of us yeah Yeah, i do do. too yeah so just i want to make sure you don't miss your housing appointment because i want you to get an offer in but (laughs) yeah totally uh, (laughs) Do you have any, I'll just kind of spring this on you the last minute. Do you have any favorite author or book? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, I know that's a horrible question. Everyone. Yeah. Well, it, it's like, like going back to like the foundation it's, you know, it's Jack Kerouac, mm. um, but is Jack correct? You know, would I really get into a Jack Kerouac book now? I don't, I don't even know if I would, mm. um, but he's the foundation and, you know, stereotypically like desert solitaire by Edward Abbey. Mm. Um, gosh, you know, solid choices. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. But those are like the foundations like now, um, God, that's a tough question. Cause like my, my mind just instantly brain farts. I should have <laughs> warned I, you on this when one. When someone I just asked me it. that question. I know. Yeah. It's like, what's your favorite band? Like, Oh God. Yeah. That one I could answer easily, but, um, well, what's your favorite you know, band? The Grateful, Grateful Dead. Dead. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no question. Um, I guess I can, can go to, um, the, the right people that write for the zine, mm. you know, um, because good answer. Yeah. And, and it's real. And to be able to be part of their journey as a writer, like a Birch Malotki, um, or a Devin Dabney, mm. um, the people that have, you know, constantly busted out multiple good pieces for me, um, they really inspire me and they really move me like a Kathy Carlo, Mm. um, people like that, that they're, I want those people to like write books and like, you know, and, and seeing their essays that they've written for me really move me and like get me thinking. I think that's the biggest thing is like, um, like, like Birch Malachi, you know, writing about like climate change and Joshua tree and, and what, how are we, you know, she sees everything from this, poetic yet scientific mind that just gets my mind in a completely different place. Or like mm. she's writes, writing about lichen or like, you know, why do we call roots dirty when lichen is this beautiful plant? Mm. Um, or like when Devin Dabney wrote about comparing the archetype of the dirt bag to the archetype of the gangster. And, and it's basically this archetype of the dirt bag is from the stone masters. And like, why do we worship these, you know, privileged white dudes from the seventies. And it's like, it makes you think about it. It's like, well, it's imagery and it is cool. And it, what they were doing was amazing. And it, but it is a myth, but they could do it. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, um, well, yeah. Then also you like people in the sixties, it's like, well, you know, what, what, you know, what were black people doing in the sixties? Well, they were like fighting for their civil rights. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. it's like him exposed, like, cause I've been thinking about the dirt bag forever. And then someone like Devin coming along and like blowing my mind hmm. about how I think, um, about something like those. So those are the most inspiring writers to me are the writers I get to work with. Like Lucas Roman is another one as well. He, he wrote that piece about Brad Gobright. That's been, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically a fan favorite, a uh, Stacy bear. I'm familiar with Stacy bears. Right the now. Afghanistan, uh, former, what was he a Marine? He, I think he was the army, army and okay. he didn't serve in Afghanistan, but he has skied there. Okay. And he started okay. adventure, not war. I knew there was an Afghanistan connection. Somehow. Yeah. He's yeah. really been, he, he's been, I think he's working on getting people out of Afghanistan right now. Mm. Um, but like those, I guess the, the people that write for me, cause like I said, I, I love books and I read a book and I'm like, I love that, but like, I can't, <laughs> I'm just like brain farting on a favorite modern writer, but when I think about the people that write for me and then being able to be intimately, whether, you know, a lot of those people I've never even met. Um, but I feel like I have this deep connection with them and because I get to like help them craft their art and then be a part of, you know, writers that are better writers than I am. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, and that's the beauty of what you're doing because you're not just relying on your own work. You're letting other people, you're highlighting other people, you're helping them and you're also getting a better product for it. Cause you get all these different voices and different perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. That, yeah. I, like I said, people, I used to have to do the pitches myself and now other people do the pitch and, and that's, you, you could come to a meeting with me. <laughs> that's winning. <laughs> yeah, now people exactly. are pitching to me. <laughs> yeah. 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 Totally. <laughs> yeah. It, it, but it's just a reflection of, yeah. you know, a confirmation of the art that you're putting yeah, into the absolutely. world. And, yeah. yeah. And just like, it's, you know, it's, it's the love of, of the art that you're getting that love back. And, and that's, that's at the end of the day, as an artist, that's, I think what it's all about. Hmm. Well, before we wrap up, is there anything else I didn't cover you wanted to talk about while we're here? Oh man, I feel like we could do another one and we should, <laughs> we should do one in person. Um, the yes, next we time definitely we see should. Each other. But yeah, it, it's just cool. This, um, you know, the reason I reached out to you in the first place is that I felt like you were talking about these things for free and obviously you didn't have to do it, but you kind of wanted that purpose. And I think there is, you know, everyone needs someone um, to kind of be a, a financial advisor or someone you need to learn this stuff from. And a lot of times it's not your education. It's, it's your friend or your dad or your brother. It's not your education, your unfortunately. <laughs> right. Days. Cause yeah, they don't want yeah. you to be financially literate cause they're taking all your money and <laughs> screwing you with all these student loans and shit, you know? It's um, very but real. yeah, I, I just think, yeah, we, we obviously have a common thread that maybe might, might not be obvious um, at first glance, but yeah, I just appreciate you for, for wanting to talk about these things and, and you're carving out a lane that um, doesn't exist hmm. and, and, and needs to exist. And if we want to have free time to climb, we need to kind of know how to best, you know, allocate our resources and our money. And so, yeah, I just, you know, tip my hat off to you for what you're doing. And, and obviously we've got a, a I'm sure we're going to keep doing this. And, and I, I appreciate your kind words and, yeah, I don't just want to highlight people who've got it all dialed in financially I, because that is at the end of the day, that word is kind of my, yeah, that's always the underlining theme in all this is some sort of freedom. And we, we have different levels of it depending on what we have going on in life, but I think we always want more and there's a few different ways to do it. And it's not just my way and it's not just Luke Mihal's way. There's a lot of ways. And so, yeah, I want to hear all the stories. So thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. 
Yeah. Thank you. Awesome, man. Well, I want you to yeah. get to your appointment, but thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I really appreciate you doing this. Thanks a lot. I'll let you know how it goes. That was episode 15 of season two. Re-listening to that really um, was interesting to see how Chad looked at the climbing zine and the business as uh, an outsider. And I think he really asked some really great questions. So be sure to check out his podcast, Clipping Chains. He's doing it all for the love of um, wanting to help out other people, wanting other people to gain financial literacy. I think he's doing a great job. Music for this episode is from Devin Dabney. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. And I'm Luke Mihal signing off from beautiful Durango, Colorado. Peace. Peace.